Well, it's time for us to get uh, started with our lesson. And uh, <clears throat> good morning again. And as Brother Don was telling us about the forbearing, forgiving nature of our Heavenly Father in the case of David, we know that, of, of course, also in the case of Israel, Israel's survival and salvation is, is based upon this characteristic of God, and, and, and it's a, a lucky thing for them that, that he has this nature and character. As we've been studying earlier about all the unbelief and the problems that they had and that the things that they did going against his commandments and things that it's amazing. That, uh, and of course, he did have anger and, and wrath with them and punished them. But then he would always gather them under his wings again and, and bring them back around. I left off. I uh, didn't uh, quite get to all the stuff I wanted to get to <coughs> me, yesterday um, in dealing with... Um, a few more aspects of Israel's problem of unbelief. And we had started a, we did a study in our uh, Ecclesia at Home on the judges on Wednesday night, and it was very interesting. And as we got into this study, um, we learned a lot about um, the character and the nature of Israel. And in the, in the book we were using, they called it the judges cycle. And I think here we could call it the cycle of unbelief, because as we know, unbelief was the underlying cause of the problems that they had. And in this, um, as we study this, we could see through the period of the judges that what they would have is a, the people would have a period of prosperity and uh, they would be doing good. They would intermingle or they would interbraid with the heathen nations around them and the influence would cause them to fall into idolatry. And of course, this would anger our Heavenly Father and then he would cause them to fall and go into oppression. Of course, then the people would... would would cry and complain and moan to God um, that they that they weren't happy with this. So then God would raise up a judge or a deliverer uh, for them in different respects. And then the, the deliverer would come in, the oppressor would be destroyed, and then we would have peace would ensue for a substantial period of time. And then as we know, time and time again, the cycle would start all over again. And... Um, as we get into following God's covenant with Israel, we know that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and the following chapter shows that obedience would result in unprecedented prosperity and would ensure the divine support in driving out these indigenous people of the land. And of course, this chapter also talks about the cursings that they would get for their disobedience. And it's interesting to note, um, and I had never realized, that they were only to, um, required to drive them out originally. As we read in Numbers 33:52, Then shall ye drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their molten images, and demolish all their high places. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then shall those that, that ye let remain of them be as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Now, isn't that the truth? We know, of course, that's what happened. And they shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. So the killing of those who resisted was only a consequence of their resistance to go and a judgment by God on their wicked past. In Deuteronomy 4:38, it says, To drive out the nations from before thee, greater and mightier than thou, to bring thee in and to give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. 
However, as Deuteronomy also made clear to the nation, disobedience, especially involving the adoption of heathen gods and practices, of course, would result in their punishment. So we see a setup here, a scenario of obedience would equal blessings, and of course, disobedience would equal cursings. And this was clearly given to them. I think they should have understood this. We know that this is why they were instructed to drive out the nations. Yahweh and his omniscience knew that the heathen nations of the land would be a distraction to the love and the devotion that they would have for him. And he required this of his people, and it hasn't changed down to the course of time. He still expects our love and devotion just as he did from them. The challenge of the record in Judges is to note how quickly Israel fell away from divine standards, and we see how repeatedly the lessons of their early history were ignored and not learned. And we think about what is this lesson here for us? Can we gain from Israel's experience? I hope we can. The history of mankind mirrors this situation, and the New Testament warnings suggest that we need to consider our position individually and as a body carefully. When Joshua led Israel into Canaan, he was able to subdue the land and put Israel in control. However, we know that all the uh, uh, inhabitants or the native inhabitants were not removed. And the reason for this was twofold. Firstly, we see that the practical fact that there were not enough Israelites to fully possess the land at once. It says, And Yahweh thy God will cast out those nations before thee by little and little. Thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. But Yahweh thy God will deliver them up before thee and will discomfort them with a great discomfiture until they be destroyed. And this kind of makes us think of the United States today, doesn't it? How we are involved in so many places. We're, we're, we're going every which way. Armies going here and there. And now we're getting spread very thin. So this would have been a problem for them to be able to maintain the areas that they had subjugated. And secondly, it provided an essential test of the character for the generations that followed Joshua. In Judges 3, starting with verse 1, Now these are the nations which uh, Yahweh left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, or at least such as before time knew nothing thereof, namely the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwell in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Harmon unto the entrance of Hamath. And they were left to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of Yahweh, which he commanded their fathers by Moses. We know the tribes therefore had work to do to complete the possession of the promised land. And Yahweh told them of this potential dangers if they did not drive these people out. It seemed simple enough. His instructions were clear. But we know as the record states, they became followers and not leaders. And I think we're going to talk more about this later, but I think in our in our lives today, and especially with you young people and your association with, with people, is that you, you take this concept of being a leader and not a follower because we know that we have to take the position to lead as being followers of Christ's commandments. But we know they gave in to human weakness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and of course they fell prey to spiritual adultery. And we define this, um, Brother Charles Kelly gave this to us, um, I don't know how many years ago in a class, the taking of the love belonging to God and giving it to another. So they did, they took the love that belonged to God and they gave it to these other 
other indulgences, these other peoples, these other, these other gods. This is a classic case of spiritual adultery. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave of their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and forgot Yahweh their God, and served the Balaam and the Ashtaroth. So the book of Judges here shows us the consequences of what they did were disastrous. And we know that they had been warned of this, but we see that the words of Joshua here went unheeded. In Joshua 10:25, he says, And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, but be strong and be of good cheer, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye shall fight. But we know they become sapped by the prosperity they now had and the appealing to the flesh habits of their neighbors. So this sounds very familiar to us here, doesn't it? I think this could be a problem for the believer today. We've talked before about affluential apathy. And here we see the Laodicean perspective. And I think Brother Aaron did a a great job covering this. Um, We're just going to touch on this, but he really covered this well. Because thou sayest, I am rich and have gotten riches and have need of nothing. And we know this is the state that they considered themselves to be in. So we know that, again, we see a time period of the past that reflects the parallels of our situations today. But the reality is the Laodicean reality. And it's, and knowest thou not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So in the end here, we find that in the record that was left for us, there are examples here of unbelief, but there are also examples of the true faith. And we realize that these accounts are for our learning. And we find this in Romans chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and through the comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now the God of patience and of comfort grant grant you to be of the same mind one with another, according to Jesus. So we see here to be like-minded here, with the like mind, with the mind of Christ. As we are able to view the struggles that the early believers went through, we see that this record serves as a warning to those who profess today to believe God's word. The challenges that faced Israel in the time of the judges we have before us today. We have to recognize the hazards that our contemporary society presents. We have to make sure that we, as believers, are not captured by the culture. So we look back to the frog in the hot water lesson. We must seek to overcome these latter-day hazards by a faithful commitment to following Jesus' example. Or have we already been so influenced by these hazards that we find it difficult to make sound judgments and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? But God's long-suffering gave many opportunities for Israel to reform, and we know that that opportunity is available to us today while it is called today. And I think as we consider this, there's a very important point here to keep in mind. We have the opportunity now, today. You know, we have no guarantee of the future. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. In Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, it says, Look therefore carefully how ye walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming 
or purchasing or ransoming the time because the days are evil. The record of God's dealings with his people Israel encourages us to walk worthy of the vocation whereof we are called. And as we see this guy looking at this time flying away from us, as, as you young people get older, it'll be amazing to you when you look back how fast this really happens. And it's, it's pretty scary. But we have to spend our time wisely, and we know that we can't uh, hold back time. In Psalms 89:47, it says, Remember how short my time is, wherefore hast thou made all men in vain? And we see this little guy here, he's trying with all his might to hold the time back, but it's going to go. Time goes, you can't get it back, and when it's gone, it's gone. So we must be wise with the use of our time, and it marches on. So that kind of catches us up a little bit. I, I wanted to cover those, those points. So for our, uh, starting on for our lesson today, I wanted to consider the aspect of unbelief in relation to uh, tragedy and loss. And this is something I think that we're going to look into that we know that most everybody here has in their lifetimes, whether young or old or whatever, has experienced some sort of tragedy or loss in their lifetime. Even at a young age, you can have the loss of a pet or a loved one, grandparent, or even something that you're very fond of that teaches us the reality of loss. And today we're going to look at how it can be a source of unbelief for people, tragedy and loss. And hopefully as we get older, we realize that this is the natural process of things. It doesn't make it any easier. It's very hard to get through sometimes. Mortality has put an expiration date on just about everything, including ourselves. And our human nature has deemed that many relationships will fail. So I'd like to consider this topic to see how tragedy and loss can affect our walk and for you young people can affect you in your lives. We know that personal tragedy and loss can cause, uh, sometimes cause people in the world as well as believers to doubt and to question their very beliefs. It can try the very core of our, of our conviction with our Heavenly Father. And we know that for some, because of tragedy and loss, the very existence of God comes into question. We know we hear a lot of skeptics and cynics about the Bible that, that like to talk about the Bible. They like to start their sentence off with, how can there be a God when... And we know that this could be followed by a million different things. There are those that have dismissed the existence of a creator because the masses of starving and dying people in some of the third world countries. Would a loving God allow entire villages of men and women and children to be swept into the ocean with giant tsunamis? We have seen people doubt the existence of God when they've had their loved ones killed or lost or die on the highways in accidents where they were doing nothing wrong. They were right where they were supposed to be and doing, going the speed they were supposed to go, and wham. Another car would come across the line and wipe them out. And this just happened several months ago in our area. There's been several incidents of this. One guy I went to school with, uh, he was a year ahead of me, and he was in a truck with some workers going north of Tularosa, and a guy veered, got out of control and came across the center line, and he was killed instantly. And... Another friend of mine was uh, going to a funeral of a friend of his that had been going to work in Las Cruces, driving every day for years, same, same route, and it was on a four-lane highway, and a car lost control and came across and wiped him out. And so 
you know, the question comes up, how can this happen? We can see how this could try the very core of your faith. And others say, how can, how can there be a God when innocent children are, you know, die or are ravaged by diseases? And it seems that when children die, this is really a hard concept to grasp. The loss of a child would be an extreme test of faith, and as we know, it has been for some of our brothers and sisters. One sad account that we're going to take a look at, um, and you all uh, will probably, be, a lot of you will be familiar with this, but it's a Brother Robert Robert's story of extreme sadness, and, it, and we know that it tested the very boundaries of his faith. The article said, The writer was 21 at the time of his first daughter, Agnes's death. A second daughter named Lydia Jane, after her mother, contracted an illness and died at the age of four months. Then they almost lost their third child, a son, Edward Augustus, when he, was also, when he also became sick, but he pulled out of it. Then in 1868, a second son named after Dr. John Thomas was born to the couple. And then a third daughter, Ellen, was delivered two years later. And then a fourth daughter, Eusebius, was delivered in July 1872, just weeks before the first Christadelphian gathering. But the great joy of that gathering gave way to the renewal of family tragedy near the end of that year. The four-year-old boy who had been named after Dr. Thomas died, and within a few days, his little sister, two years old at that time, died from the same disease. Can't even imagine that. The loss of loved ones happens every day in the brotherhood, and it's tough. What kind of faith would it take to get through a trial like that. <clears throat> Brother Roberts inserted a black-bordered announcement in the magazine which he edited, which read, Between the two lectures on November 22nd, a knife was plunged into the editor's heart by the death of a charming son of four years named after Dr. Thomas. You, unusually intelligent, frankness, manliness, and docility with the personal comeliness and physical development in a high degree had endeared him to many but above all to his father, who found in him a pillow of comfort in the bitterness of the battle. The blow is crushing only, only one consolation is available, that the father cannot err. He reigns without him, a sparrow cannot fall. He doth not willingly afflict, but designs good in everything, even the sorest ill, to those who were called according to his purpose. He gives and takes away and remains blessed forever, giving us the hope that at the last all curse shall cease, and the cruel sorrow of the night shall be forgotten in the day of glory, for which present suffering is an essential preparation. But, oh, the cup is bitter, and the heart bleeds, the chastisement is grievous, and the afterwards may heal the wounds. Evil rather than the good is our rightful portion at the hands of him by whom all things consist. And to it we must now bow if the heart breaks in the act. We are of yesterday and nothing. God is all. Exalted is he above all blessing and praise. He has made us to hope in his great mercy, notwithstanding our earthly feebleness and unworthiness. Blessed be his name, if all flesh perish. And to this note that he wrote was another one attached in small print that said, His sister, two years old, called after Sister Thomas has, since the above was in type, died of the same disease. So then, after this, once again, adver adversaries of the truth took advantage of this double calamity to see if the Christadelphian thinking on the mortality of man could be moved. The following comments from part of a letter sent to the sorrowing father. 
Um, this letter came in response to Brother Robert's announcement about his children. And it said, That bright boy, the joy of your hearts, that promising little soul, John Thomas, has gone. To where? Here, my dear friends, I am indeed sorry to take issue. I wish with all my heart your faith and experience were even as mine. Deem not my sayings as idle words. I know he lives. That bright spirit who look often, who, who look, whose look often gladdened your hearts is simply evolved from its tenement of clay and having cast its shell like the beautiful butterfly has taken itself wings and is now basking in the sunshine of that bright summer land. It is no false consolation. I offer you a sparrow cannot fall without the father, you say. True, and you do think that all the all-good and all-loving father has permitted such a gem as yours to fall without hope of recovery or ever raising him up again. Oh, if it were true, I would not own or recognize such a father. I should like to know what good from your standpoint can result from such a catastrophe as this. We are grieved for you. We truly sympathize with you. And we hope the day may soon come when the Christadelphian dogmas will be swept away and superseded by the glorious realities of spiritual knowledge. And that's some. To this, the saddened Brother Roberts returned a statement that showed the depth of his faith. He wrote back, We refuse to be comforted with a lie. This is the mere language of the carnal mind in rebellion against the Creator, whose ways it would, it would measure by its little feelings and conceptions, forgetting that God is the author of all and that we are as but the clay in the potter's hands with no more right to criticize or complain. None can stay his hand or say, What doest thou? Goodness will come at last, but only of his sort and in his way. Myriad forms of beauty bloom and perish. They are but the blossoms of his power. All beauty is latent in him. He could multiply them a millionfold, yea, and beyond. Are we to say that because he permits one to appear, he is bound to give it immortality? He is bound to do nothing. He doeth all things according to the counsel of his own will, and his will in this matter is that the understanding and obedience in Christ shall be the basis of immortality and not the mere creature beauty, which is no more to him than the exquisite patterns of the snowflake under the microscope or the brilliant hues of the peacock's plumage. These are but transient forms of his eternal power. The permanent forms are to be based upon intelligent submission. The carnal mind rebels against this and reveals in false consolations, which are but the dreams of its own propensities. But it is bootless. God reigns and not man. Enlightened humility recognizes the reign of death as the great act of the situation and accepts with thanksgiving the blessed hope of the gospel of Christ that they who believe in him shall not perish but be raised up again in his, in, at his appearing and his kingdom. Said many letters of comfort echoing these thoughts poured in from brothers and sisters from near and far to assuage the grief of the sorrowing father and mother. So think about that. Four out of seven children perished in early childhood. Robert Roberts saw adversity in a way that few of his brethren ever will. It was his, it was his same hand that a few years later penned that majestic work, The Ways of Providence. Not for a minute did he lay down his pen and silence his voice for the truth's sake. Never did the thought of the bitter rebellion enter his mind. And two days after the death of his beloved little boy, he rose to address the people of Birmingham in a lecture on Nebuchadnezzar's image. 
Faith in the ways of providence cannot be detached from the other foundations of our belief. The case that we have been considering shows this. So will we reject the truth for the sake of false comfort? And I know all of us have probably attended um, other people's funerals. And have we seen this false comfort spoken at funerals? The grief which afflicted the Roberts family directly challenged their conviction in the mortality of man. And this was a key doctrine underlying the whole plan of salvation. So we can rightly look to the examples of Robert and Jane Roberts as towers of strength in easing us through some of life's trials. Not that they are the source of comfort in the end, but only to the extent and the principle stated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.4. It says, Who comfort us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. We know that the believer's acceptance of personal tragedy ultimately stands or falls with his relative emphasis on this life as compared to the life of the coming age. If he is persuaded that this life is a brief transitory phase of a great eternal plan, he will lean upon his only desire for the glorious day when God shall wipe all tears from his eyes. There is good in trouble if it intensifies our yearning in this connection and sharpens our perspective of the vanity of mortal existence. We know the pain of loss is still there, but we lean on our Heavenly Father for his support and his love to get through this. The article went on to, to say that there was probably one grief equal to the sorrow that Robert's, um, Robert Roberts felt when his youngest son died, and that was that his eldest son, Edward Augustus, never embraced the truth. During his studies in medicine, he was turned away from the truth, and his father must have grieved at this life wasted. His son, accomplished as a medical doctor practicing in London, but without the hope and without God in the world, this spiritual death is as disheartening and saddening as the natural death of an innocent young child. And he said some ways more because the former had an opportunity never available to the latter. So we see here that a spiritual loss can be very devastating and can challenge our belief. We cannot understand how our darkest hours will work to our eternal good, but we must trust implicitly in the confidence that God has with us however difficult it may be for us to grasp when the trouble overwhelms us. And as we look back at Robert Roberts' case, the death of his firstborn, it was a catalyst starting a chain of events which led him to move to Birmingham, Birmingham, and it promoted the call of many to righteousness. So we see from being derailed, he bravely went forward, trusting in God to get him through this. And I personally experienced a situation of unbelief with someone in the world due to uh, a tragedy. It was a guy that worked, that used to work for us, and I tried to drum up a, a conversation with him one day. I saw the opportunity, and he said, "I can't believe in a God that that would have let my son die from cancer. Don't even try to tell me anything about a God that would let that happen." And his son had died from cancer just as he got out of his teen, out of his teens, and this man was not in any mood uh, to discuss religion. So again, we see. How can there be a God when? We know that unbelief that forms out of tragedy and loss can be very difficult to change. Wounds that are caused by tragedy can be very deep. It can take a very long time to get over. And the sad thing is, 
our Heavenly Father could be the greatest source of strength and support to help somebody get through this. Instead of seeking God's help with the problem, a lot of times people will put the blame on him and say that he's the cause of the problem. And this truly is unbelief in motion. We know that this type of hurt can last for many years. As a tragic end, the guy that I was talking to, he also died about a year or so ago with the same mindset about God. So that's very sad. So we must try to understand the help available to us. Uh, and we again look at the verse in 2 Corinthians. We'll read another verse with it. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comfort us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. And we know there are many uh, heart-wrenching stories about people's tragedies and suffering. But thanks be to Yahweh, the God of all comfort, who offers the ultimate consolation in the end for those of us that will just take advantage of it. And I think it's how sad uh, for those that decide to go through these things without him. We know it's impossible to talk about tragedy and loss in dealing with life and problems such as that without talking about Job. <clears throat> when we look at Job's losses, we know that he, he lost about everything you could lose and it was all in, 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 at the same time. His livestock, his family, and then his health was smitten. As we turn to Job chapter 1 and read into this, we can see how this thing developed. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone, gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt sacrifices according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man, an upright man, and one that feared God and choose evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God or not? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and all that are about that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the, Lord, and the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away, yea, and they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another man and said, 
the fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away and have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote out the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. Can you imagine that, getting that news, one right after the other? And what was Job's response? Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. His attitude here is remarkable. And then we know he is physically smitten. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. Okay, so he lost his family, he lost all of his herds, and now he's been smitten physically. And I don't know if anybody has ever experienced boils. Um, I haven't really had too much to do with that, but I've heard that it's, it, it's incredibly painful. To have boils all over your whole body would be horrendous. So how many of us could have endured the things right here that Job went through and have the response that he did? And of course, we know about the support that he got from his wife. Then saith his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Nothing like some words of encouragement. And then the comment from um, Eliphaz, his friend, Behold, thou hast instructed many and hast strengthened weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was falling and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee and thou faintest. It toucheth thee and thou art troubled. As we look at the character of Job, we get a clue as to how he handled this tragedy so amazingly. We know back in verse 1 it says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So we don't have a lot of time to deal with all the aspects here. But we do know that Job used his, his character um, was of the, the sort that he was uh, of a good man. And he did love God and he was righteous. So we need to strive to handle adversity like Job did. We need to include our Heavenly Father in prayer when we come up against obstacles. To pray for strength and guidance. We know here again it's our choice to believe or not to believe that God will help us. In Romans 8.28 it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So here we see that in the grand design of things, man cannot grasp the workings of Yahweh and put logical reasonings to the things that happen every time. So this is where our faith comes into play and we have to understand and let go to the fact that God has our eternal interests in mind. We can rely on his strength and his guidance to that end. And we know that in the end, Job's patience and faith paid off. His suffering and his affliction went away. And we know he was restored physically 
And then we know, we, we know that his prosperity also came back. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all of his brethren and all of his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. And he also had, again, seven sons and three daughters. So here we see the result of faith, the result of keeping our belief strong. So we've talked about the loss of loved ones, the loss of health, the loss of possessions, and I'd like to consider now and go into um, the loss of faith. I read an article that talked about this. It said, the whole issue in the matter of belief versus unbelief reduces to one simple question. Does the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influence destiny in another the article pointed out that the person that does not hesitate to answer in the affirmative is profoundly affected by his convictions. He's willing to wholeheartedly do whatever it takes to assure his position in the future. No sacrifice is too big, no sacrifice is too great. He is not seeking what now is, but he has set his heart on what will be hereafter. And we've heard some of the brothers talking about the kingdom vision. This is the thing that we think about we visualize in our minds our goal. He shares little affinity with the world he views as a passing and transitory phase of an eternal plan. So isn't this where we're supposed to be, brothers and sisters and young people? As believers today, we should view things in this light, taking on the mindset of Abraham. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city who hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So I think this, this shows putting things into perspective. Lots of things we could say about that one, but we're going to go on and deal with the aspect of uh, strangers and sojourners a little later on. But in contrast to this fellow, we see... Uh, we also have the man that has had a hard time putting an answer to this question. All he knows is that he has this life to spend. And I don't think he spends a lot of time contemplating about the future. He finds it unthinkable that he should adjust his present interests for the sake of a future of which he has never been persuaded. And we think back about our words, the definition of unbelief, unpersuadable. This man cannot be convinced of a, better, of a better or future life. He's made his choice. The life he has today is everything to him. He will take whatever it offers and try to exploit it to the fullest. To him, it is the good life. This last man's mentality is something that we do see a lot of today. And in fact, if this life is what a person is living for, I think by all means you should pursue it with great fervor and try to get as much as you can. They should give it all they've got and hope for the best. 
When we think about this life, is this as good as it gets? As believers, we should know the answer to this question, but there have been brothers who have great possessions, and I've heard that are actually satisfied with the life they have today. Big houses in town, lake houses, boats, RVs, financial securities. Their successes in this life has dampened their desire for Christ's return. And I can't imagine this, but you can see how this could happen. Once again, we see spiritual adultery, the taking of love belonging to God and giving it to another. There are many things that we know that can draw our love away from God. But we must not be fooled. We've mentioned this before, that that things and stuff should not be the recipient of our love and dedication. We know these fleeting temporal things can soon disappear in an instant. And we've all seen examples of this. In Matthew 6.19 it says, "Lay Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we can't let materialistic things distract us from our service to God. Because as we've seen very well illustrated in the life of Israel, he is a very jealous God, and he demands our attention. He demands our fidelity. And he has the right to demand our fidelity. We know that man's uh, allotted 70 years goes by with warp speed. So we have to put our time in where it counts. We have to make use of our precious time. And God has answers for us. We just have to search the scriptures to get his direction and truly find, to try to truly find out um, how good it can get. We must understand that the things that Yahweh offers us go so much further and beyond the things that this world has to offer. As we know in 1 Corinthians, and this verse has been read before, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And as we've said, materialistic blessings are fleeting. They're here one moment, and gone the next. So we have to invest ourselves in something eternal. And we also see that wealth without quality of life or without health is meaningless. And we have no guarantee of our health. We've, we've seen this around us all the time, how our health can be taken from us or from our loved ones in an instant. This next section, we're going to get into uh, another cause of unbelief. Um, But I think we're just about out of time, so I think it would be a good place to pick up with tomorrow. Thank you.